Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down the third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. This serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus and he stood on the sand of the sea this is the word of the Lord all right good morning everybody everybody doing all right enjoying these nice fall days. I'm going to be watching this morning, see who uh, stayed awake for the whole Phillies game last night. I think I'll have a pretty good clue <laughs> in a few minutes. Um, but yeah, I guess it was, uh, it was my early teenage years. I can remember when uh, American military, we launched 
Operation Desert Storm, right? Because Saddam Hussein had moved his forces to take occupation of Kuwait. Uh, we wanted them out of there, and so we launched Operation Desert Storm. I can still remember, this was, I think, like 1990. I would have been, I don't know, who, who knows what, but 12. And I can still remember, um, you know, seeing the, the tanks rolling across the desert. This was my first images of warfare. Uh, and I can remember it was relatively short and painless, quick in, quick out. Uh, except at the very end, I also can remember, you know, kind of the image, maybe some of you remember as well, too, uh, when Saddam Hussein was leaving Kuwait um, in defeat, he, he had this rage-filled temper tantrum, and he decided to light all the oil fields in Kuwait on fire. And so it was like this image for months and months on the news of just these plumes of black smoke and flames coming out from these oil wells all throughout the, you know, the fields and the deserts of, of Kuwait, or you think even today, you know, uh, with all this, with this ongoing conflict of the war in Ukraine, as it's dragging on and on, and as Ukraine seems to have a formidable defense, right? There are some voices who are starting to say, "Hey, you know, we got to be start to be careful here. Uh, it might be wise for us to think of a way that we can offer Putin uh, a way out where he can sort of save face a little bit, uh, because." The longer this thing drags on and the longer it goes, well, he's not to be able to accomplish victory. And as more as he stands to be humiliated, it's quite possible, some are saying, that, that he might have this temper tantrum of all temper tantrum, unleash hell and, like, you know, start to unleash his nuclear warfare or whatever. And we should take that seriously, say some. Uh, in a similar way, I feel like that's what we're, we're dealing with here this morning, right? Last week, we, were, we did all of chapter 12. I wanted to read again just so we could get back into the flow of the story, right? But... Uh, Part of the central action there was this defeat of this great red dragon, right? The Satan figure has been cast out of heaven from the courts of heaven and be cast down to the earth. And pretty much what we have in this passage is this dragon throwing a massive temper tantrum, right? Knowing his time is short, pretty ticked off that he's been cast out of heaven and suffered this defeat. And so he turns his rage, he turns his temper tantrum towards the people of God, the family of God, the body of Christ, and really, our simple goal this morning uh, is to do uh, sort of what, what Mark prayed for us already. So I think we're already there. But it's just, it's just, this is what Revelation wants us to do. It wants us to just stop it, to see things that sometimes we so often miss. And I think goal number one this morning is just to see this reality, that there is this rage-filled dragon who's throwing this cosmic temper tantrum with the church and God's people square in the crosshairs. So we're going to want to see that this morning. And we're going to want to also see where God is in the midst of all that. Uh, namely, providing for, caring for, sustaining, protecting the church. And then I want us also to see what is the calling of the church in the midst of this conflict. Okay? So that's where we're going. Uh, if you weren't here last week, right, again, we're working our way through chapter 12. We're back in the book of Revelation. Or if you're new with us or you came, joined us just over the summer, uh, the Better part of 2022, we're working our way through this great book of the Bible, Revelation. We took a break over the summer uh, to deal with more topics and issues that we wanted to talk about. But now we're getting back into it. And one thing we had to do last week is that we sort of had to like stretch our interpretive muscles a little bit, get them loosened back up, because it's good for us always to remember that this book of Revelation, this is unlike any other book, well, not like any other book in the Bible, but it's, it's a unique one. It's, it's very unlike most anything else we read in today's literature. This is apocalyptic literature, which has its own rules 
and ways it go about presenting whatever it's presenting. And this is just very unfamiliar to us. You and I, we don't normally, we aren't normally in the habit of reading apocalyptic literature, right? And so we had to go through some, you know, remind ourselves of some interpretive rules. One of which being, and we saw right away, okay, like the book of Revelation, it's not always linear, not always a straight line, right? The story just doesn't unfold one sequence after another after another. It oftentimes will cycle back on itself. Case in point, the beginning of chapter 12. The beginning of chapter 12 doesn't pick up exactly where uh, chapter 11 left off, but instead we're going back. Uh, We're going back in history. We're going back to, well, to the Christmas event, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of the one that the people of God had been waiting for, had groaning, had been groaning for, as if in the pains of childbirth, say the old prophets, right? We're going back to the birth of the king, the birth of the one who would bring to fruition God's purposes for all the nations. And the problem, or the conflict, is that in that delivery room is this fiery red dragon, Satan, whose sole purpose in life is to undo all the purposes that God has, right? And so he's in that delivery room as as the woman is on the bed, and he's standing there, he's seething, he's foaming at the mouth, he's ready to devour this child as soon as it's born, put an end to God's plans right then and there. But then we sort of fast-forwarded to the ascension of Christ, and we see that this child was delivered from the enemy, he was grabbed up to the throne, to the right hand of the Father, and when he ascends and when he takes his place at the right hand of the throne, this is also the great defeat of the dragon. And this is the climactic defeat of Satan. He's cast out of heaven. The power of sin and death, the power that he wielded in God's plan, has been fundamentally now broken, right? He's cast out of heaven, and then this is where we pick it up. This dragon turns his rage with what time he has left, he turns this rage towards the church in this great cosmic temper tantrum. You know, and I think it would also be helpful for us to remember another rule of just interpreting this book. We want to remember that it is written for us, but it was written to a specific group of people, right? A specific group of churches, you know, in the first century who themselves were, uh, they were facing hardship and suffering and persecution. And I'm sure that many of them from time to time say, hey, what's the deal with this? Why in the world is this happening? I thought we had aligned ourselves with the king of kings, the one who's on the throne, the one to whom has been given all power and authority under heaven and earth. Why in the world are we suffering? Well, part of what Revelation aims to do is to to pull back the curtain to help answer that question. And part of the answer is there is this foaming hot red dragon who is turning his rage and his energy towards the church in a whole variety of ways. Okay, but what we see in the passage, and this is where we're going to kind of camp out, is that the, the woman and all of her offspring, right, which we looked at last week, probably symbolic of a whole company of God's people, the family of God, the body of Christ, right, has been swept away into a wilderness, where she's cared for and protected and nourished. But, okay, even, in, even that is a little bit odd, strange, right? Uh, okay, I, I've aligned myself. I've entrusted my life with the king of kings, the exalted one. Why do I now have to go camp out in a wilderness? 
symbolically, if you will. We'll get there in a second. Why do I have to go camp out in the wilderness for a period of time? You might look, luckily think, okay, when, if my king gets on the throne and my king is in power now and my king is directing author, uh, you know, history to its appointed ends, okay, shouldn't this mean that I'm moving back to, I don't know, the good land? I'm moving back into the city. I'm moving back into places of comfort and privilege and power, whatever it may be. Why am I spending time in a wilderness? And maybe the first thing I would say to that is just remember that this is not, this might seem strange to us, but it's not exactly strange in the biblical storyline. Right? Think how many times this happens in the biblical storyline. Right? Think about the most dramatic event of the whole Old Testament when God delivers his people from the clutches of the evil Egyptian empire. And he brings Pharaoh to his knees with all these plagues and then he drowns the, you know, the army of Egypt in the Red Sea. And he says to him, I've got this great land flowing with milk and honey that I'm taking you to this promised land. Ah, but first, we're going to travel through a wilderness together. Or do you think of David, right? When we were, I don't know, a little while ago back in 1 Samuel. And remember the story of Samuel going to the house of Jesse and working his way through the sons of Jesse until ultimately he came to David. And he said, ah, this is the one. And he anoints his head with oil. Essentially, at that point in time, makes him the de facto king over Israel. And so you think, okay, great. David's now going to go down. He's going to inherit the kingdom. He's going to inherit the throne, the palace, whatever. But that's not how the story goes. Uh, Instead, he becomes enemy number one. And he has to go flee into the wilderness and hide with the outlaws and the bandits because he's a marked man. Or you think of Jesus himself, right? Opens his public ministry by going down into the waters of the Jordan River. John the Baptist baptizes him there. And when he comes up out of the water, you know, the dove comes down from heaven. The heavens open up and this loud voice declares, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to this guy. Right? And you imagine if you were on the banks of that river and you're looking, oh, at long last, This is the true son of God that we've been waiting for, who's going to establish the kingdom and bring us deliverance, right? And so maybe you're on the bank and say, all right, let's go. Let's get out of the Jordan River. Let's march our way down to Jerusalem. Let's get this show on the road. But where does he go next? Spirit doesn't lead him down to Jerusalem. Spirit leads him out in the wilderness where he's going to do battle with the, the opposition, with the enemy, right? So there's something to this. We're going to talk about that. But first of all, we have to deal with this 1,260 days. I don't really want to deal with it because this can get us into a whole lot. But I think we have to this morning because there's something really important in this. Um, And part of the reason I don't really want to is for quite an extended period of time, the the church in America was very enamored with this period of time, this 1,260 days, uh, pretty much my generation or older Right. Um, well, I'll say it this way. You have this 1,260 days, which gets um, mentioned a couple times here in chapter 12 and a couple times in chapter 11. 1,260 days or also 42 months or three and a half years or sometimes as it's referenced, time, times, and half a time. A year, two years, and half a year. <laughs> right? Three and a half years. And if you're reading the book of Revelation linearly, right, if you're reading chapter 12 is coming on the heels of chapter 11, where we also talked about this three and a half years, you put these two things together, never mind, and you got seven years, right? 
And for a long period of time, the uh, church in America was very enamored with this seven-year period. This became known as this great tribulation time, right? Because that's what chapter 11 is about, three and a half years where the great witnesses suffer. And then you have three and a half years here where the people of God are suffering as well, too. So you put these two things together, um, and you have this seven-year time of great tribulation. And I can remember when I was growing up, uh, there were all these debates in the church. Like if you were going to debate something theological, you were going to debate, well, where do you stand on the tribulation? Are you pre-tribulational or are you post-tribulational? Meaning, do you believe that the church is going to be here for this time of tribulation and go through that? Or do you believe that the rapture is going to come pre-tribulation and get the church out of here before this place goes to hell in a handbasket, right? Um, and if you're my gener- if you're well generation below me and younger, you're asking what in the world are we talking about here, right? Because we've kind of pulled back off of that. But I think this is important. I'm not trying to relive some of the old debates from my childhood here. <laughs> but if you if you can probably guess how I'm looking at this, one I don't I don't read it necessarily linear. I think we're going back in time, right? In Genesis 12. And here's the thing too, right? The other major major rule of apocalyptic literature is it's not always literal. That is very symbolic stuff all throughout this book, right? Think about chapter 12, for instance. In chapter 12, we've got all this symbolic stuff. We've got a symbolic representation of Satan. He's a dragon, and that's a symbol. Satan is no more a dragon than he is a, a lion, a roaring lion, prowling around seeking whom he devour, as Peter refers to him, right? He's a fallen angel. So it's a symbolic reference. When John wants to paint a picture of Satan, he paints a fiery red dragon. I think even the wilderness is something of a symbolic place. It's not like the whole people of God get up and we leave our homes and we move to I don't know, the desert out in Arizona or something like that to camp out in the wilderness. It's more of a symbolic place or a symbolic experience, which we'll talk about in a second. All right, so we've got symbolic characters. We've got the woman who is symbolic, right? We've got the dragon. We've got symbolic places. And here's the thing. We also have symbolic time periods, right? Oftentimes when when we interpret the book of Revelation, it seems like people are, are willing to allow there to be symbolic characters, symbolic places. But when it comes to time, for some reason, we have to be really literal because we don't know what to do with symbolic time. But if you ask me, this is actually a very symbolic time reference. And so you say, well, what in the world is 1260 days symbolic for of? I say, well, that's a great question. And actually, if we want to answer that question, probably the best thing we would do is we would if we could, we would hop into a time machine. We go back and we ask the original audience, hey, does 1260 days or 42 months or three and a half years, does that mean anything to you? And chances are, they would say, especially if they had any knowledge of Jewish history, they would say, oh yeah, absolutely, for sure it does. There's actually a holiday that we celebrate every year that commemorates a period of three and a half years. Oh, man, I hate to dive into history, but I do think this is interesting for time-wise. So just bear with me. This goes back to just like a century or two before the birth of Jesus. And we've talked about this here, actually. I think we talked about it on Palm Sunday, where the nation of Israel was this kind of disputed territory between the Seleucid Empire in the north and the Ptolemies in the, in the south. And at this point in time, they're under the control of the Seleucid Empire in the north and under control of this Wicked, wicked guy, King Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth. Antiochus the Fourth. Okay, and part of Antiochus' 
whole mission and purpose was to eradicate any notion of Jewish tradition, custom, and religion, right? He wanted to make them all good Greeks. He wanted them Hellenized, in other words. And so during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, it was a capital offense to own any portion of the Jewish scriptures. Or it was a capital offense to celebrate any of the Jewish holidays. It was a capital offense to celebrate the Sabbath. Antiochus goes into Jerusalem. He renames the temple as a temple of Zeus. And he sacrifices an unclean animal, a pig, on the altar out front to say that, okay, this is a new thing now. And the other thing he's doing, he's going all throughout the countryside and he's trying to find any remnants of Jewish priests and he put them to death. And there's this one priestly family, Mattathias, Maccabeus, and his son, Judas. He said, all right, enough of this. Like, if we're going to go down, let's go down faithful. Let's go down fighting. And so they mount a resistance, and he gets his band of followers, and they launch this guerrilla warfare against the Seleucid Empire and the armies of Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, right? And actually, they're pretty successful. They're very successful, And for a period of time, they resist, they hold fast, they beat back the Seleucid army. And ultimately, at the end of it, they march into Jerusalem, they purify the holy city, they purify the temple, they kick out the abomination of desecration, they send Antiochus packing, known as the Maccabean Revolt. And guess how long the Maccabean Revolt lasts? 1260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, right? From, AD, from BC 164 to 160, no, from 167 to 164, right? And so if you go to anybody who's familiar, I mean, this was huge. I can't overstate how huge this would have been in the history and in the culture and in the context, right? So you go to any church at this period of time or anybody with any kind of Jewish knowledge, you say, hey, what does three and a half years mean to you? Uh, or three and a half years in the wilderness mean to you? And say, oh, that's going to be a period of time where I'm going to be tried, and I'm going to be tested, and I'm going to face stiff opposition, and I'm going to be called to remain fast, steadfast, and faithful, and true. Which is all to say, if you ask me, um, this is a symbolic period of time that is going to be marked by trial, testing, Opposition, and it's going to be the symbolic period of time where the people of God are called to remain faithful and true. And so if you ask me, in other words, I would throw myself decidedly on the camp where, uh, yeah, no, the church is going to go through this, right? So does that make me poster? I don't know. Actually, it really doesn't because the other thing is I don't view this as a future thing, right? For me, if I'm reading through Revelation 12, this began the moment the king is ascended on the throne, This began the moment the dragon was cast out of heaven and became irate at his defeat, humiliated. This began the moment he started to turn his rage towards the church, towards the people of God. Or, to put it another way, as John put it, in the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, when he introduces himself to the churches that he's writing. Do you remember how he introduces himself? He says, I, John, partner with you in the what? May remember? Partner with you in the tribulation. Right? I, John, as I write from exile, as I write from my own situation of persecution and hardship and opposition for the sake of the kingdom. I, John, partner with you in the tribulation. 
And again, I'm not going down these roads to get anybody any angrier with me or to get you know, tempted to wire up. See, look, there, little Toby, he's had enough. He's, he's out of here. <laughs> right? I'm saying this because I think this is really important, because I think or I sometimes have this impression that Satan's number one tactic and strategy for the American church is to get us to think he's not that big of a deal. And I think one of the ways that he does this is to get us to be fixated on what might come later and think right now we're not in that yet. That we don't have to worry with that, that we don't have to be on guard, that we don't have to be awake and alert, but that that's coming someday and we're not there quite yet. Uh, this is, it was actually a uniquely American phenomenon in the American church that we became fascinated with this tribulation. Maybe Great Britain as well too had sort of a fascination, but you know, if you would have gone and talked to any of the churches, or if you go today and you talk to any of the churches around the world, like where the church is thriving most significantly and is suffering most intensively, and you say to them, hey, what do you think about this tribulational period as something you know, happening in the present? They might say, yeah, this is, that's actually exactly a great description of what it is we're facing. We feel like we're walking through this day in and day out. It's only the American church as we've lived in relative comfort and ease and security that we're fascinated with this as something off in the future. If you ask me, uh, Amy and I, we were, we, well, our whole family, we were, prior to coming here, we were uh, helping get a church started out in Gettysburg. Uh, and Gettysburg, uh, among other things, is apple country. And the hills just to the west of Gettysburg, there's all these rolling hills, which are great places to put up apple orchards, right? Which meant that it was also a, a, a destination for migrant communities that would come and work in those orchards. And so when we moved out there, we actually moved into a neighborhood that was probably 40, 50% uh, Hispanic. And, and just through our encounters, our relationships, and our experiences, uh, particularly with our neighbor across the street, who we got to know fairly well, I think there were a couple of times where Amy and I said, you know, it sort of seems like Satan's strategy is to be much more bold and in your face and visible even in non-American cultures and communities. But it seems like with us Americans, like his whole strategy is just to keep us fat and happy and content and just kind of quiet and like his whole strategy is just sort of lay low and to lurk behind the scenes and to work his way into the back door in the church. And I think one of the ways that he maybe does that, right, is he gives, he, he, he has us be more worried about what's coming than what's already been taking place right here. Like we get so worried, rightfully so, about the changing currents in culture, right? Changing sexual norms, changing definitions of marriage and gender and all that, rightfully so. But like as we become fixated on that, we miss the way Satan is coming in the back door in much more insidious and much more deadly ways, like flooding the church with, individualism, right? That thinks this is all just about me and my private relationship with God. Or consumerism, that thinks the church should all be about what it can do for me and what it can provide for me, you know, or whatever. Or, or tribalism, or nationalism, or therape, thera, therapeuticalism, I don't know, all these other alisms which can be just as deadly and just as insidious because they're hidden, they're coming in the back door, and we're so fixated on what might be yet to come that we miss what he's up to in the here and now. And the book of Revelation wants you to have none of that. Right? The book of Revelation wants to pull that curtain wide so that you see clear as day there is this hideous red dragon that is coming for you. And it wants to flood the church right? with the stuff pouring out of his mouth, with the lies that come out of his mouth. 
We're going to see how that continues to unfold in chapters 13 and 14. So I'm going to leave it there because real quickly, I need you to see, well, what happens during that time? Well, one, God is very faithful to the church, right? He's whisking the church away to a place that he has prepared for her. And if we had time, I'd show you how that word there for the place is actually a word that's used all throughout the scriptures, often in reference to a sacred holy place, or is often used in reference to the tabernacle, right? In other words, God is whisking the church away to a place in the wilderness where he is present to nourish and to sustain and care for and protect the church. In other words, on account of the victory of Christ, he is going to protect Spiritually, mind you, not necessarily physically. Death might come, so says the passage. But he's keeping the church spiritually. He's keeping the church that nothing, like we looked at last week, will ever separate us from the love of God. Nothing will ever separate us from the eternal covenant that he's established with us in Christ. Nothing will ever separate God's people. No matter how much that dragon rages, nothing will separate God's people from the eternal purposes that he has for her. Okay? And part of what that ought to do is just liberate us to live boldly. <laughs> when I play sports now, occasionally I like to do a little trash talking. The older I get, that's really all my game is anymore. It's just trash talking. There's not a whole lot of skill there anymore. So I like to play more with my mouth and maybe, you know, I don't know what. But I'm also finding as well, too, as my skills are, are diminishing a little bit. Before I start to trash talk, I look at who else is around me on my team, <laughs> right? Because it's not like I'm confident in myself and I'm going to start trash talking. I'm going to look to see, well, who's, who's playing with me here? And if these guys are solid, well, yeah, well, now I'm going to start trash talking because of these guys, not me, right? In the same way, Right, because we know that our creator, our redeemer, the one who has put forth the son, is, is on our side and is going to guard and is going to protect and is going to keep us eternally. Uh, that can give us this little freedom to, to live boldly in the midst of that conflict. Which is the last thing that I'll just draw your attention to in the text. It's actually what we're called to. Right? The wilderness is not to be this time where we just go hide in the rocks and we lay low and we just kind of keep a low profile and let this storm just kind of pass and ride itself out until this is all done. No, the wilderness is called to be a place where we conquer that dragon, the text says, and we conquer it by the blood of the lamb that was shed for us first and foremost, but then also by the word of our testimony, by the way we give evidence in our lives of who Jesus is, of what he's accomplished, of his kingdom and what it's all about. And the way that we do that, or how do we do that, you might ask? That's a great conversation with a lot of things that we could talk about, but I think the clearest answer to that comes at the end of the text, where the, the church is described as the community of people who, one, keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus, throughout the book of Revelation, is characterized as the faithful witness, the one who with his life and with his death gave faithful demonstration of who God is, his righteousness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his purposes, his intentions, right? So the church is the group of people who are called to embody that 
And to show that to the world, right? We show that to the world by the way we keep the commandments that God has given to us in his word. And by the way we hold to the example of Jesus. By the way we pattern our life after Jesus. Or as Raj was telling the men's group yesterday, as we look to Jesus as our exemplar. The one who sets the example for us to live. And again, hear me out. We don't do this to somehow earn our way into heaven. Or we don't do this to earn the graces and the favor of God. Like That's all been accomplished and secured for us in the sacrifice of the lamb, in the victory over death that he has accomplished, right? In the casting out of the dragon from the courts of heaven. That's all done, done, accomplished, no more. We do it because the world needs a tangible demonstration of this new king in town. We do it because a world drowning in darkness or a world that's just being swept up in the current coming out of this dragon's mouth needs to see the light, the glory, the beauty, the salvation of Christ. And so the church in this time is called to anything but hiding and laying low. Right? It's called to be a living witness and demonstration through obedience to God's instructions and are holding fast and living, living out the testimony of Jesus. Okay, this is the last thing, I promise. <laughs> uh, you could say, well, yeah, but isn't, isn't the wilderness the place where you go to hide, right? Isn't that what David did? He went to the wilderness to hide out from Saul, who was on the, you know, the rampage. Yeah, okay, I guess so. But there's more to it than that. Right? The, the Israelites, for instance, they didn't go in the wilderness to hide out. They were going in the wilderness as preparation to enter into the promised land. Or Jesus, when he goes into the wilderness, he's not going there to hide from the people who want to make him king. Right? He's going there for some reason, to be prepared or to be equipped to then go into whatever he has next. Even David, you could argue, you could say, well, maybe that part of that is him hiding out from Saul, but probably even more, what it is, is about David being shaped and formed and molded so that he can fulfill the task in front of him, which is to lead the people of Israel as king. Right? So in other words, what else is the wilderness? But it's the place where... You know, when everything else is stripped away, all the other junk that we might look to for life and salvation or whatever is stripped away, uh, God moves in and he proves himself worthy and faithful. It's actually a passage in Hosea where the prophet is looking down the road in time and he's saying, okay, Israel, you're going to suffer because of all the spiritual adultery that you've participated in. You're going to go into exile because of the way you've played the whore with all these foreign gods and you've brought them into the temple and you brought them into their home, your homes and you bow down, you worship to them. You're going to face exile as a result of that. But there's going to be a day where God's going to renew his covenant with you. And in chapter 2 of Hosea, uh, he says God is, is actually going to woo you again. He's going to allure you again to himself, to his beauty, to his goodness, to his righteousness. And how's he going to do that? He's going to draw you into the wilderness and speak tenderly to you in the wilderness places. When all those foreign gods are stripped away and all those things that you look to for comfort and security and salvation or whatever, get rid of all that junk. Come with me out in the wilderness and I'll show you who I am. I'll show you how I can care for you, provide for you, tend you, and nourish you. Right? It's like Nate was saying. Actually, Nate was, it was, I was going to quote from this hymn, you know, of reminding us of God's abiding presence. There's a great old hymn, Abide with me. Abide with me. Fast falls the evening tide. The darkness deepens. O Lord, with me abide. 
When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, O abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills, uh, Ills have no weight or tears, no bitterness. Where is death's victory? Where, O grave, thy, or where is death's sting? O grave, thy victory. I triumph still, if thou abide with me. Right? And then the wilderness is the place where that gets proven. We strip all that away. And we come to God in humility and dependence, longing to be cared for, protected, fed, and he proves himself. He provides, he nourishes, he defends, he keeps us to the very end. So the wilderness is the place where we go to feed on nothing but God so that we can find strength, the strength that we need to play out that difficult calling in a world where there's a dragon ready to pounce. Actually, the picture I had in my mind is a picture from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The rod and the staff that comfort me, right? All this. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'm going to use the old King James. I fear no evil, for thou art with me. And, and then at the end, thou preparest a table for me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. Right? Just get that picture, right? Where we're sitting at a feast, <laughs> a banquet table, and the enemies are all gathered around, waiting to pounce, waiting to pray, waiting to deprive us of life or whatever. And yet God has laid out this banquet. You anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, wherever I go, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? Amen. Right, that's sort of the picture here. In the wilderness, dragons circling this, but we're sitting at a banquet table called the feast. And so the challenge I will leave you with, first of all, a challenge to you if you're curious about Christianity, if you're checking it out this morning, and you're probably thinking, dragons and women in the wilderness, and what in the world are we talking about here? You <laughs> head spinning. All I would say to you is this, you know, kind of like the way Mark prayed this morning. We know, is we, all you got to do is look around, and there is a lot of messed up stuff in the world. And this is a broken place, and it seems progressively to be getting worse, or in, more insecure, or whatever it is. And what the Bible would say to you is, if you think that is a purely physical phenomenon, that if you think that there's no spiritual component to that, you're naive. Or you're privileged. <laughs> right? You ask non-Western cultures around the world, you think there's a spiritual component to the hardships you're facing? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure there is. Right? So the Bible would challenge you, see behind the curtain, see that there is a spiritual conflict going on, and see that you'd be foolish to try to square up with that spiritual conflict on your own. Bible wants to invite you into this kingdom where you can be secure and you can be provided for and cared for and nourished. And to those of you who have entrusted your life to Christ and are giving your life to obedience to the things that he calls us to, and to faithfulness to his testimony, who are clinging to the blood of Christ, the challenge I would hold to you is make sure you're not going at life and mission on a diet of junk food. Right? Make sure you're not uh, sitting at your table with the enemies surrounding you, prowling, lurking with the snacks that you got from Wawa or whatever, you know, munching on these things. Make sure you are desperate 
for the food and the nourishment and the grace that God has laid out for you. And so the question I would leave for you, the question maybe you can talk about in your grace groups after this or throughout the week, yeah, how do I avail myself of the grace and the power that God gives to me? What are the avenues of grace that he feeds me with so I can make sure I'm integrating those things into my life and I'm feeding off of them properly? And actually, that's where we'll close because we're not going to do that together. We're going to come to the Lord's table, which is partly a remembrance of all that Jesus has done for us and having his body given, his blood poured out. But we also believe that this is a table where we are fed and nourished. Uh, We believe that as we come to the table in faith, the spirit of Christ, the risen Christ, meets with us. And he feeds us and he nourishes us and he strengthens us to go back out for a period of time into wilderness places Take up our calling in the midst of conflict and adversarial confrontations. All right, and so invite all, each of you. You don't have to be a member of Grace Church or regular participant here. If you feel your need of Christ, if your confidence is what, in what he has done, and you're looking to him to strengthen you for what he's called you to, by all means, feel free to come to the table and receive. If that's not where your confidence lies this morning, if your confidence is in yourself or in some other God or something else, Hey, I'm glad you're here, and I hope that we can continue that conversation. Uh, Scripture would admonish you to withhold, let the elements just kind of pass you by. Or Scripture would invite you to make that decision today. Make that decision today. I'm foolish to think that I can sustain myself in this world, but I need to be fed. And if that's your desire, even for the first time today, then by all means, come and receive the bread and the cup. The way we do it here, uh, the worship team is going to come forward. In fact, you can come on up now. We're going to sing two verses of All the Way My Savior Leads Me as the kids are coming back down. And then we'll pause. I invite you to come uh, and receive the elements. We'll pray together. We'll partake and we'll give a closing song and on we'll go. Okay? But so as we go, may the Lord keep you. May he bless you. May he feed and nourish you to play out your part until he comes. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.